Amen. Thank you, folks. Appreciate that much. Hebrews chapter number 10. If you'll grab your Bible and join us there. If you have your prayer bulletin, we have an outline on the back. I'd love for you to follow along there. Brother Doug's coming down the middle aisle, too. If you need an outline, that'd be great. And since Brother Dave will be doing the prayer request here later, a little bit later, I'll share one and that we already added to the list. Please pray for Miss Donna Camille. She fell last week. At the end of last week, Friday things broke her wrist and her nose. And so... We just pray for her, and uh, she's doing well, and uh, doesn't need surgery, at least in the last talking to her, so we're thankful for that, and uh, praise the Lord that uh, surgery doesn't seem to be needed, but just pray for her. She has some other doctor's visits coming up, so pray that that would be confirmed, that all would go well, and obviously the Lord would touch and heal Miss Donna, but she was in good spirit, so just uh, thankful for that, and didn't get hurt worse, and so just rejoice that. Just remember her, if you will. Keep her up, uh, uphold her in your prayers, Lord would bless. Hebrews chapter number 10. Oh, this is a, a, a wonderful part uh, in our series on Hebrews. It's actually very exciting because we really bring to a close the doctrinals. We said last time we're, we're at this point where we're going to transition from the doctrinal to the extremely practical in the end of chapter number uh, um, uh, 10 into chapter number 11 and following. So very exciting. You remember last time as we looked here, um, verses eight, 1 through 18, kind of the, the summation of it all. And the verse 12 is kind of the focal point, or we shall, shall we say the theme verse. Look at verse 12 again. Let's read it. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice, for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So we began looking verses 1 through 4, and I apologize, I think I got the verses wrong by the Roman numerals, but it's actually 1 through 4, not 1 through 5. But we saw the single sacrifice pictured, and we understood that word shadow in verse number 1, and uh, how it was, uh, these sacrifices were the shadows to create expectancy in God's people. The shadow is preparatory, it's preliminary and anticipatory, okay? And then we just uh, identified that these shadows were um, uh, repeated. Repetitive. They were repeated often. He uses that term year by year continually, and they were reflective. And uh, that statement where it caused them to remember. The sins were remembered, I believe, verse number 3 uh, there, okay? Then we looked at last time together, verse number 5, starting there, the single sacrifice presented. Paul uh, does a very unique thing, right? We had that conversation between God the Father, God the Son that happened in ages past about the incarnation. And he quotes Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, as we looked at last time. And I love that. And you remember the statement? I think this is so very true. One of the times, whenever we see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, one of the great delights of that is typically the Holy Spirit, who's the author of both. We'll see that even tonight reiterated in the Scriptures. But he adds illumination in the New Testament and understanding. He gives a greater context to what was written in the Old Testament, which is phenomenal. It's always good to get more of the story. It's always good uh, to, to, to have it. In fact, most of us here probably in some relation, we under, remember Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. You remember Paul Harvey and the rest of the story? I grew up listening to that. Paul Harvey and the rest of the story. And so those were always exciting to listen to, right? Well, often in the, Old, uh, the New Testament, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He, he Take something out of the Old Testament that maybe was obscure. Maybe it wasn't 100% clear. It wasn't obvious what was being spoken about. And sometimes he'll use the New Testament author to reference that and explain it more, which I love. I'm thankful for that. I, I love the old statement. Okay, we heard it all throughout college a lot too. And, and so the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. 
the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. And so it is. It's very true. And so uh, as we take the Bible literally, the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. And so we see the Holy Spirit putting that into practice. In these shadows, we saw that there is a bold proclamation, verses 5 through 9. He said, thou wouldest not. It's that repeat, uh, repetition of Psalm chapter 40. Uh, there, God said he takes no pleasure in, in their sacrifices, no delights in their atonement for sin because they could not atone for sin. As we noted last time, verse 4 made that clear. Such sacrifices could never take away sins. We are told numerous, uh, numerous round times that no amount of sacrifices can substitute for obedience. And so um, the point being made even in this passage, as we talked about last time together. Remember also Christ talked about doing God's will. You see that repeated several times in verses 5 through 9. Each of these verses, he, he says, uh, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. It is something that's reiterated time and time again, as we saw in the Gospels. Christ made this very clear. You did not have to wonder about Christ's purpose statement. He gave his mission statement time and time again. I come to do the will of the Father. I come to do thy will. And so he reiterates it here, Paul does, for us to understand Christ and his purpose and his mission, shall we say. Then verse number 5 spoke of that body that was prepared. The fact that God the Father prepared the body for his son, the incarnation. We made this statement. The point is that the ultimate sacrifice that alone could atone for our sins once and for all was prepared and provided for God alone. For God so loved the world that he, what's the next word? Gave, right? He gave. He prepared it. Uh, he, he was the one who provided it. He, the greatest sacrifice, God himself made the body, prepared the body for Jesus Christ to come into. So body was prepared. Then we saw the reference to the volume of the books, right? The book proceeding, as we called it, that his coming was foretold in the God's word for all to see. How the law and the Psalms and the prophets all foretold Christ's coming and much more. His birth, his behavior, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his future reign. All of that is foretold in in the volume of the book, as Paul would write it here, as the Holy Spirit inspires him to do so. And we made this statement that Jesus Christ and his coming are all over the pages of the Old Testament, and so they are. And uh, it's one of the cohesive aspects about the Bible, is Christ being the central theme throughout of it, the, the plan of redemption throughout it. And so we see that uh, so very true. And so he culminates it in verse number uh, in verse number 10 uh, here, um, that, where he shows the um, bountiful plan, okay? In verse number 10 here, um, it's all put together in this verse, isn't it? The will of God, the body prepared, the coming of Jesus, the sacrifice made. And I, you remember, I, I kind of, we, we finished up dwelling upon the first statement there in verse 10, that, where he says, by the which will. And I love that because it's expounding upon what is the will of God. Well, the will of God is that all would be sanctified, is what the verse says. The sanctification of all. So crucial, and that is only uh, capable or is only possible by what Jesus Christ did and the fact that his sacrifice was once for all sin and once for all time. Now, very much tonight, we expound upon that. And Paul really um, expounds upon it, but in some exciting ways, if we might put it. As I said at the beginning, this really is an exciting time. Uh, you and I are getting to verse number 18, which is really the transition point. And uh, verse 19 really turns to what I would call the, practi- the practicality of the Christian walk in light of what we have just studied for the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. Paul is very good in Romans. You remember Romans in our study? He spent the majority of the book of Romans establishing a foundation. So Paul does it here. 
in Hebrews. He wants to make sure that every Jew that he ever talks to, that ever reads his epistle, would understand exactly what is the foundation for faith in Jesus Christ. All that it entails, all that it means, what Jesus Christ did, who Jesus Christ is, and how superior and supreme he is to everything they know. And so Paul has done this numerous times. He is very big. This is one of the reasons I believe Paul wrote Hebrews here, is because of the way that it's laid out, very similar to Romans, uh, in the presentation of the doctrinal aspect about it so very foundational here now he's going to reiterate some things and if we were just to read it on its surface you and i might say well paul you've already mentioned this already we're we're kind of beating the proverbial dead horse we're we're just repeating some truths and some doctrinal facts paul that you've already mentioned in the first 10 chapters and yet i would remind you as we have found to be true with paul paul is a a, a classic teacher Paul believes in the old rhetoric that repetition aids learning. And so he does so, but every time he repeats it, he adds a little bit more. He, he gives you a little bit more meat. He adds a little something, a little additional truth or a little additional fact, a greater detail if we might describe it as such. And so as we come to, to verse 11 and following, we have termed it this, okay? We've seen the single sacrifice presented, the single sacrifice pictured, and now we come and he's going to explain how this single sacrifice is perfect, it's perfected. And, and this next is an exciting passage. Look at verse 11, if you will, with him. Okay, verse 11, chapter 10. Here's what he says. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and, often, and, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Verse 13. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Okay. Now, first of all, you'll notice uh, the cohesiveness or the continuation of some thoughts. Number one, he, he now moves from just comparing Jesus Christ as the sacrifice to comparing him to the priest that offers the sacrifice. So he's both the sacrifice and the priest here. First couple of verses here, you've already uh, probably recognized them immediately. Hebrews chapter number 1 and uh, Hebrews chapter number 8. We've covered this where it talks about Jesus Christ sitting down on the right hand of the Father, going to heaven and sitting down. We, we talked about that. And so he, he, he hits on that again. And his point is very similar to what we've seen before. It's simply this, letter A, okay, as you see, the finished work of our high priest. The finished work of our high priest. Now, again, it would be easy just to glance over these and say there's not much different here. But there is when we delve into it a little deeper. And I'd have us to see the, the necessary comparison that Paul puts uh, before us between the old ways and what Christ did in the new covenant for every person. In fact, when we delve into it, it becomes very powerful and poignant. The comparison is astounding. And what Paul establishes ought to be very comforting, challenging, and encouraging all at the same time for you and I. Number one, I'd have you to see what seems somewhat obvious. We see the standing priests and the sitting priests. The standing priests and the sitting priests. He began by explaining and alluding to that Christ is sitting there on the right hand of the Father. And yet, the very next statement he says in, in verse 11, or before that statement, And every priest standeth daily ministering. You see the statement that no doubt the priests of old were very weary and tired in their ministry. Once the priests of old, they'd completed a sacrifice, the reality was they had to be ready for the next one. They were on standby, if we could describe it as that. 
as we've stated before and here in our outline, the job was never done. They were always needed by someone else who brought a sacrifice. And, and certainly on those days where great sacrifice were needed, they were necessary and needed. They, 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 it would have been hard for them to get off the job. It would have been hard for them to catch a breath because they were just repeating it time and time again. And so that is why Paul specifically says they were standing. They were standing by. They, they were ready to go because they had to be repetitively. Can you think of the tens of thousands, probably even the millions of sacrifice the priests of the Old Testament offered, always having to be on standby, ready to offer the next sacrifice that was brought, never being able to say, oh, it's finished, as Christ did on the cross. And the picture obviously is here that as Jesus Christ finished the work on the cross of Calvary, he went to glory and he sat down because it's done. Because as he said on the cross, it is finished. The will of God had been accomplished. What he has said, I, I'm coming to do the will of God. What was the will of God? The redemption of man, the sanctification of mankind. And so Jesus Christ came, he accomplished the will of God. And we'd say this, in Christ, perfect atonement has been achieved. We'll speak throughout this, uh, th- or about this thought here throughout the passage. It wasn't just covered over, it was literally dealt with, removed, purged is the term we'll use here soon. In Christ, that was accomplished. It could not be accomplished before. And so Paul makes this point. That priest was standing. Our priest is sitting. It's a done deal. It's complete. Number two, he said this. He used an interesting word. Did you catch it? He said the same sacrifices and the singular sacrifice of himself, of Christ. But as Paul writes here, I, I found it interesting <laughs> that he says they, they offered the same sacrifices. Now, that's an interesting little uh, introduction to the passage, if we might put it that way. Literally, the sacrifices and offerings of old were never different. Um, Nothing changed from sacrifice to sacrifice. The ones that were dictated by the law were the ones that were given and time and time again. Just the same old, same old, repeating the same exact sacrifices that would, were done and we'd be done again in the future. But then Jesus Christ came. And it was a totally different sacrifice. As the Jews thought of their animals that they offered in the past and everything that the law and uh, the Levitical uh, dictates uh, made clear and instructed them, this was a whole new ball game. This was, this was totally different. Uh, nothing like anything they had seen before. In fact, it was nothing like the world had ever seen before. Obviously, that sacrifice being the unique, perfect Son of God offered for the sins of mankind. I love the description that the world had never seen anything like this before. If time could allow us, we, we could go through all the, the gods and all the religions of this world, specifically those maybe around the time of, of Christ and before. And can I tell you, you can search the annals of history and you will never find a God as compassionate, merciful, and loving as the God of heaven. We know they're all fake. Don't get me wrong. We know that they are all false gods and and they're not even real. They're idols. But reality is man can't even concoct a God as good as the real God. Isn't that amazing? It sets them apart. And so when the God of heaven made a plan, and his plan was, I'm going to make a prepared body, uh, make a body for my own son, God himself, to come to earth and to die on a cross for sinful man, my own creation, the creator for the creation. 
it was the most unique sacrifice you could ever imagine. Paul is drawing our attention to that truth and reminding us that this is unheard of. This is something that no one could dream up. This is, this is so out of it that um, uh, incomprehensible. Especially compared to a sacrificial system that repeated the same sacrifice time and time again. This was totally and completely different, never seen before, and never to be repeated. And this sacrifice alone can do what the heart and soul of every person needs. He goes on, he says, not only the standing priest versus the sitting priest, the same sacrifices versus the singular unique sacrifice. He says, number three on our outline, the frequent sacrifices and the one forever sacrifice. Again, these are words really that he uses here. And we've obviously spoken to the frequency of the, uh, the sacrifices. We won't beat that dead horse. But I would have you note the word oftentimes. Oftentimes, he says. The priest standing daily ministereth these sacrifices oftentimes. The word literally means frequent. It's frequently. He just does it time and time again. It, it happens all the time. And yet, when he goes to describe the very sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he uses the word forever. Now, could you and I pause, though this is simple rudiments of the faith that you and I have known probably for years. Let's think about that for a moment. What Paul is making in the statement is this. The penalty has been meted out. The price has been paid. The demand has been satisfied forever for good. And then I would say this. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever gone through a terrible day, a painful day, most of the time you're, gone, you're glad that it is gone and it's in the past. Amen? You never want to repeat it. Can I just tell you for you and I, it ought to be of great encouragement, this truth. The cross will be forever behind Christ in us. It's always in the past. No, it doesn't have to be repeated. That was a forever sacrifice. No longer do we have to go back and re- revisit that day. No longer uh, do we have to see the, the Savior of the world, our Savior, hanging on the cross. In fact, I would put it this way, and you see it there, a little Baptistic hallelujah. We never have to revisit Calvary. Jesus Christ hung there once, and my friend, that will be the only time Jesus Christ hangs there. You say, Pastor Henry, why, why, why would you never have a, a, a cross with Jesus Christ hanging on it? Because, friend, he's not there, and he will never be there again. There's no reason for us to hang on to a crucifix or anything. There's no point to it. In fact, it just reminds me of the most terrible day when my Savior died. I don't need a reminder of that. I know it every day because my sins are forgiven, and I have the promise of heaven, and I want to look forward, not backward. I don't want to put him back on the cross. There's no need to put him back on the cross. It was a forever sacrifice. Grateful that the blood of the perfect Savior will never have to be shed again. They will never pierce his side again. He'll never be nailed to a cross again. He'll never have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. In fact, you and I know well, the next crown that will be placed upon his head will be the one that declares him the King of kings and the Lord of lords the ruler of all creation. Never again do we have to face that. The death of the sinless and guiltless Lamb of God will never occur again. And my friend, we ought to rejoice in that tonight. We ought to rejoice in it every day and be thankful that that is the case. 
the frequent sacrifices versus the forever sacrifice. And then probably the point that he dwells on the most, number four, is this. The powerless sacrifices and the one purging sacrifice. Throughout this, you've seen the singular aspect compared to the multiplicity of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. We see it repeated again. Again, this is not new information. He, he says it again, what we've read already in this chapter and previous chapters, that the sacrifices are old or powerless, and he uses that terminology again, to take away sins. Verse 11, he says it's powerless. It can't do it. It, it can't remove them. Their incapability is clearly exposed, not only in this verse, in this passage, and, but in the book, it's revealed. And the contrast, Christ's sacrifice was one sacrifice for sins forever. So what he's saying is this, and now it, it kind of brings up for some a doctrinal dilemma. It brings up for some, it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. It's, it's this truth, Christ's sacrifice took care of all sins for all time, the past, the present, and the future. Took care of them all. It purged the believer of all his sins. And as I said, that can be a difficult concept sometimes for us to wrap our minds around. That Christ's sacrifice, his finished work on the cross of Calvary, paid for every sin that I have committed and the ones I will commit. Now, Paul's, an, Paul's a, a lawyer. He, we've talked about this before. He writes very much like one, and he, he likes to anticipate the questions and the arguments that might come up. He, he likes to uh, answer them before they're asked, if we might put it this way. So elsewhere, Paul anticipates uh, that those who maybe in the flesh would say, well, wait a second, if that's true, I just go on sinning. I, I, I can just sin to the day is long. I can just, what's the big deal if I sin? If the sin of the past and the present and the future is all paid for. If I've trusted in Jesus Christ, why don't I just keep on sinning? You remember how he put it? Romans chapter 6, verse number 1 says what? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's his question. Why, don't we, why, why can't we just go on sinning then? Or he anticipates that question. Two words he uses to answer that in verse number two. You remember what it is? God forbid. No way, Jose, in modern vernacular. Okay, God forbid. Don't even think about it. No, that's, that's not even on the table. And what he is saying, and even in this passage, his point is this. You might ask, or our flesh might ask, well, are people free to sin now however they want and how often? Well, the, this passage and others <laughs> instructs us that the understanding of the finished work of Christ doesn't affect those who are truly saved in that way. If you have come to understand what Christ did on the cross for you, what if you have understand that it's a finished work, that you don't have to do anything to add to it, you, you can't add anything to it, that Christ has done it all, when you come to that realization, it doesn't cause your mind to go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. It doesn't cause you and I to ask, well, man, I can just sin all I want now, and everything's hunky-dory. No, it's quite the opposite. You and I on a daily basis or probably or should be as believers. We, we should often think that when you and I commit a sin that though every sin is paid for, the guilt and heartbreak of knowing that what I have done, what I have just done, nailed Jesus Christ to the cross ought to flood our heart and to fill our mind. It ought to touch our soul. When you read Romans chapter 5 and you realize that by one man sin entered into the world, yet by one man 
<laughs> death came upon all of us. But Jesus Christ came. God commendeth his love toward us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It means something different when you understand what Jesus Christ did. It changes everything. It changes your view. It changes your perspective of sin and this life and all that there is that you and I speak, that is spoken of in the Scriptures and all that you and I have. I like how one author stated it. He said this, and I think it's a good way of putting it. What put me out of sin enjoying business or thus sin enjoying business was understanding that every sin I have ever committed or will ever commit is responsible for Jesus Christ dying on the cross. I like the beginning of that statement. What put me out of the sin, enjoying business. What changed? We came to the knowledge and the understanding that every sin I have committed, every sin I will commit, was just as guilty as anyone and anything else for nailing Jesus Christ to the cross. My sin. And when we wrap our minds around that truth, we don't want to have anything to do with sin. There's no joy to it. There's only heartache. You see, Christ's sacrifice was truly the only powerful sacrifice because as the passage here puts multiple times, it alone can take away every sin. It alone accomplishes the purging that no other sacrifice could do. Furthermore, it did what only he could do. Look at verse 14. I love this statement. Verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected, oh, there's the terminology, forever them that are sanctified. Now, I like that. Remember, because verse number 10 has already said, okay, he sanctified you by what he did, his sacrifice that set you apart. And he says, now, that sacrifice is still working on you. What he did is still working in you. He that hath begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Being confident of this very thing. Christ's sacrifice is still at work. It's sanctifying you and I, as he put here in verse number 14, He's perfecting us. He's perfecting us. It's a great concept here. Literally, that you and I would be ultimately brought, if we could put it this way, ultimately brought to completion, that we will be changed into everything that God has saved us to be. I love that. As we trusted Jesus Christ, he set us apart. We've been sanctified. In fact, in, in, in theological terms, doctrinal terms, we'll talk in positional sanctification. We'll talk about progressive, progressive sanctification. and We'll talk about that perfect, perfect sanctification in heaven, okay? That's really what he's describing here. So we have positional sanctification in Christ. He set us apart. As we trust in Christ, we're set apart. Now, the, the reality of Jesus Christ's sacrifice is still working on us, the, completing us to the day we reach full maturity. Perfect sanctification. Perfectness as it's used here. It reminds you and I that as he's changing us, and I, I love th- to put it this way, okay? Right now, we are not all that we ought to be. But praise the Lord, we are not what we used to be. And yet, someday soon, we will be all that we should be. All thanks to Jesus Christ. I love that statement. It's a good reminder. In fact, we could wake up every morning and say, you know what? I'm not all that I should be, so I need to work on it today with the Holy Spirit guiding and directing me. But I sure am thankful today that I'm not what I used to be. And I'm really thankful that one day I will be all that I need to be. He'll complete the sanctification. And this is all thanks 
to Jesus Christ's sacrifice. It's a beautiful thought. Paul is making a great point here uh, in this. Thing. I, I told you this. It seems repetitive. It seems that he's just kind of going on the same thing. But man, there's so much here that Paul incorporates as he repeats something, adds a little bit more. And so he does here. Now, he brings us to a very interesting end of the passage. And uh, as he brings it to a close, the, the whole doctrinal section, he, he does something in, in verses 15 and following. That's quite interesting. Look at verse 15. It's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, notice what he says. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. So he calls someone else to the witness stand to confirm what he's saying, right? For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more, verse 18. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. That's a powerful passage, okay? So what he starts off at the beginning, we'll call it the faithful witness of the Holy Spirit, the faithful witness of the the Holy Spirit, okay? We had the finished work of our high priest. Now we have the faithful witness of uh, the Holy Spirit, okay? Holy Ghost. Now immediately, did you catch something? I I I thought this was neat, studying it. He quotes, and some of your Bibles will tell you in the middle uh, column, that these next couple of verses, specifically here in, in verse 16, okay, it, it's quoting from what book of the Bible? It's Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. Now, it's interesting. He does not say that, that Jeremiah, the prophet, you know, the, the great Jewish prophet has said before. That's not what he says. He does not attribute the quote to the prophet. He attributes it to the Holy Spirit. You see it here, and it's a great proof statement of this. The divine authority of the entirety of the Bible. Because he says, what? The Holy Spirit wrote this before. The Holy Spirit said this before in Jeremiah chapter 31. He doesn't say Jeremiah wrote it. He doesn't say, well, the prophet said this. No, he said the Holy Spirit said it. Now, here's what I find interesting. I was thinking this week, and specifically today, as I was going over this passage here, thinking, man, this would be a great passage to use when you witness to a Jew. Hebrews chapter 10, man, this is, this is just packed full of things that you could throw in the, uh, for a Jew's consideration, okay, to, to argue with them, can try to convince them, allow the Holy Spirit to use. However, there's one big problem with that. How do the Jews view the New Testament? Not as the Bible. The Old Testament, yes, that's God-given, God-inspired, but the New Testament, that's just man-made and everything else. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, if they could only see the truth of this. That's why Paul was trying to write. That's why Paul did not do this by accident. Paul said, listen, the Holy Spirit was a witness of this. In fact, he was a witness before any of us were alive. He, He was a witness back here hundreds of years before. When the Holy Spirit, who inspired each and every one of the authors of the Bible, inspired Jeremiah to write of the new covenant, of the new covenant, all the way back in Jeremiah 31. I don't know about you, but that that sure does encourage me and makes me excited to see things like this that confirm the entirety of the inspiration of the Bible. Holy Spirit wrote it all. The Holy Spirit here is the witness that is affirming or confirming 
that the time has come that now these things that he says that we see in these verses, verses 15 and following, these things are going to happen because Christ has done what he has done. Specifically, that statement that a lot like to use to apply down the road, but it certainly applies to that. But also, as we've seen in our study of Isaiah and such, it applies to this time too. That the law of God, the very Spirit of God, are now indwelling the believer. And as he talks about here, I'll put my, my, my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Here's the fulfillment of that. See, the witness of the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Now, why is that important? You remember what verse number 3 said? The sacrifices of old were what? reminders of the sin look back at it he says listen if those sacrifices verse 2 were, were not repeated then there'd be no longer a reminder of sin the the conscience wouldn't be consi- consistently guilty wouldn't be reminded of all the sin committed but they were repeated so the reminder was constant i'm a sinner i need a savior i'm a sinner i need a savior but when christ's sacrifice was made No longer sacrifices that remind us of our need and of our great sin. What do we have? We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. That is a witness of what? Well, the Bible tells us, right? Verse uh, 17, he says, In their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So now you and I are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He writes his law upon our hearts and in our mind. And in doing so, he reminds us, listen, it's under the blood. Jesus Christ has paid the price. Literally, if we could put it this way. As the sacrifices have ceased, the guilty conscience is now replaced with a comforted conscience. How is it comforted? It's comforted by the Holy Spirit because he assures us of the justification and redemption we have in Jesus Christ. That we, that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's such a blessed thought. The sacrifices of old were a constant reminder, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, there's no hope for me, I better keep this up as a covering. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you and I could have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, so that you and I could have the comfort of the assurance that we are saved forever. I am his and he is mine. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. And the Holy Spirit continually ministers to you and I. It isn't certainly just this passage. I I love how Paul would elaborate on that truth in his other book, in the book of Romans. You remember what he said? The Spirit itself beareth, what's the next word? Witness. Same word that he uses here. Beareth witness with our spirit that what? We are sinners. That we're our sin, he convinces us. No, no, no. What's it say here? That we are the sons or the children of God. And that sacrifice makes it all possible. That the Holy Spirit indwells you and I. And there's a comforting assurance. Well, certainly we understand the, the role in John chapter 15, 16, 14. The role of the Holy Spirit. He does convict the world of sin. He does do those things. But here he's comforting you and I. saying, man, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, believer. And as those sacrifices were reminders of your sin, this sacrifice and all you've gained through it is a, is a form and an assurance of your salvation that you belong to him. He would go on, and as he speaks of God removing our sins, not just covering them as the old sacrifices do, he uses the word in verse 18, remission. You see it there? Verse number 18, as he concludes this section, now where remission of these is, 
that's not by accident, okay? Because he's comparing that to the covering up atonement of the Old Testament. Those sacrifices just covered, they didn't take away sins. He's made that point. However, here, the remission of sins, as verse 18 would describe it. It's a great statement, right? They've been taken away. They've been purged, as we've used that word already. And yet, the Greek word that is, the Greek word that is translated here as remission, it carries also the idea of God's forgiveness. It's translated nearly as many times. So think of context of what Paul uses it here, and here's what he's saying. When he's speaking of both uh, the remission of sins, he's, he's speaking or identifying a couple different things. Notice it real quick, okay? Here's what he's saying. The point of the use of the word remission is this. Here's the full idea of the word. One's sins have been forgiven, a meaning of the word remission, to the degree that pardon, another meaning of that word remission, has been granted. It's a beautiful thought. When he says where the remission of these are, when the sin has been forgiven in such a manner that only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can do, full pardon is granted. As we talked about before, Jesus Christ, we're glad we don't have to go back to the cross. It will never be repeated again. Aren't you thankful that there are passages in the Scripture that tell you and I that Jesus Christ has taken our sins and he's buried them in the deepest ocean? Literally, you know what he's saying by that? I'm not going to bring them up. I'm not going to hold them in front of your face. Hey, look, pardon has been granted. He also says as far as the east is from the west so far so have i removed your iniquities and your sins from you it's great truth one's sins have been forgiven to the degree that pardon has been granted and as you and i are here tonight that is where we stand in christ we are encouraged to take to heart the truth that remember what our lord and this kind of speaks back to what we talked about well, shall we sin more it's interesting I think probably the greatest expression of that is this. Remember Jesus Christ, as he was called, and uh, some of the religious leaders wanted to kind of trip him up. They wanted to use him uh, uh, kind of against himself and prove him wrong. They called him into the midst of this little huddle that they had, this little meeting that they had, and there was a woman taken in adultery, remember? And by the end of it, they'd all walked out from the oldest to the youngest, and the reality is Jesus Christ looks to her, and he basically says this. Where are those who accuse you of being guilty? They weren't there. You remember his next statement? Go and what? Sin no more. Can I tell you right now, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're no longer hounded by your sins. You no longer have to face the penalty of your sins. They are gone forevermore. That that has accused you of being guilty is all gone. So my friend, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. It is the perfect answer to what Paul is saying here, the perfect conclusion. He's saying, listen, this is what we have in Christ. His God's amazing, complete, and full forgiveness is realized in the life of every believer. When it is, one can't help but purpose to what? Go and sin no more. When you realize what Jesus Christ has done for you in his sacrifice, there will not be any inclination, desire to go and sin more. There'll be only the desire to please your Savior and go and sin no more. And that's literally what Paul gets into now in the rest of the book of Hebrews.